Good morning, everyone. Good morning. Uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. Uh, I don't know about you, we had a little bit of a crazy morning getting everyone here today, so it's, it's good to be with you all, and no matter what your week has looked like, whether it's been good or bad, we come here to worship the Lord. So if you want to stand with me, we will begin this morning with the call to worship from, taken from Psalm 104. I'll read the bold section if you'll read after me the non-bold. <laughs> Bless the Lord, O oh my soul. O oh Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works. Who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have being. If you want to remain standing and we can sing together the great hymn, Holy, Holy, Holy. <clears throat> Holy, 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 
Confession of sin this morning. Some of the most emphatic wording that, that I can remember is found in Romans 3 10 through 12. It reads, As it is written, quoting the Psalms, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. That pretty much puts everybody in the same, same category, doesn't it? Puts everybody on the same level field, so to speak, where um, maybe those who have thought that they uh, fit within a moral Society and the society or the culture that they're a part of, they fit that, that moral narrative. Uh, doesn't matter. Maybe that person who has uh, committed heinous crimes. Doesn't matter. We're all in the same level field here. We're all in the same level field. And he emphatically says no one is righteous. And not only are we not righteous, we are, in other scriptures, incapable of being righteous. It's all God. Another place Paul says that uh, no one is righteous, no, not one. Um, it doesn't get any better than that. If you would all pray with me this prayer of confession. Almighty God, Father, you are holy, eternal, infinite, all-knowing, and all-powerful, clothed with splendor and majesty, the one true and living God. And it is when we see your holiness that we see how unholy we are, that no one does good. And even our best works do not merit salvation. Forgive us for the sake of Jesus Christ. And by the power of your Holy Spirit, remind us of your precious and very great promises. Amen. join with me as we sing in Christ alone. <clears throat> Song. 
He doesn't leave us in a place of no hope, but he offers hope through his son, Christ Jesus. In 1 John 4.10, he said, and this is love. This is what true love is. This isn't the world's offer of love. It's what God's love is. Not that we have loved God. We've already established that we are incapable of that. And this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation of our sins. And there's that $64,000 word again, propitiation. And that has to do, again, if, if I can remind you, it has more to do with the wrath of God than it does our sins. 
The sins is what is, has brought us to this place. But the propitiation of sin has to do with taking care of the wrath of a holy and just God who pours out his wrath to a deserved uh, people who have not measured up. And that's been taken care of by Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that though we have been found unworthy, that we have been found incapable, that we have been found um, in despair, that you have poured out your grace on us and your mercy. For those of us who are undeserving, which is all of us, we're all on the same table, the same, we're all on the same board here. But you have found, you have found favor in us through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you for that, Lord. And we receive and ask you, Father, for continue setting us apart, building us up, that we would glorify you, which is our main purpose for being on this earth. In Jesus' name, amen. So when we get to the confession of faith in the Orthodox Catechism, The question is, what is the providence of God? And this pretty much establishes how God is able to pour out this, this mercy and this grace that we have, that, we've, that we were a part of. It's because he is sovereign. He's the only one who, who can do this. He's the only one who is capable of pouring out something that we, we so desperately need. If you don't read the answer to this question, what is the providence of God? The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby he upholds and governs heaven and earth and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitfulness and barrenness, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, all things come, not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Amen. You all can be seated. Good morning again. Uh, it's good to be with you all this morning. If you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 8, we'll be continuing our study through this great chapter in God's Word. And we're, we're coming close to the, the end here, and we'll um, culminate next week with the final verses. And so for those of you that have been with us, and for those of you that haven't, a brief review. We've been going through Romans 8, this great chapter in God's Word that begins with this great sentence, There's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ. This is sort of the highlight of the whole chapter, and we've seen Paul bear this out as he goes along, that, that God has done what we could not, that he sent his son, that he has fulfilled the law perfectly, that he's indwelt believers with this spirit of God that causes them to kill their sin, to pursue holiness. And then we've seen some of the benefits that Christ has won for his people on the cross. We've talked about 
not only justification, but even in this chapter, things like sanctification, this God of this great work of God conforming his people to the image of his son. And in the last couple weeks, we looked at this idea of adoption, that God's people are adopted into God's family, not because of what they've done, but because of God's only son, Christ. And then in the last couple weeks, really starting with verse 17, we saw Paul turn a little bit from these great benefits to the great hope of the Christian. Namely, this great hope in the face of suffering. And so we saw in verse 16 and 17 that we've been adopted into God's family, that the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, but there's this suffering that accompanies the Christian life and a walk. And Paul is not shying away from that. He's not afraid to talk about suffering. He faces it head on, and he gives ultimately the Christian great hope in suffering. And so hopefully we've seen that, that we looked at a couple weeks ago, this great glory that is held out for the Christian, that the sufferings in this present life are not even worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed. So Paul holds out this great glory that is for the Christian. And then last week we talked about that even in our weakness as Christians, and in something as intimate and as personal as prayer, the Spirit even helps us there. That the Spirit ever lives, I mean the Spirit intercedes for us, that Christ intercedes for us. And so we've seen this great help that the Spirit has been given to God's people, that every Christian has the Spirit. It's not just for those with religious experiences or all these sorts of things, but every believer has the Spirit of God indwelling them, working in them, sanctifying them. And bearing witness that they are God's children. And so this is great hope for the Christian in the face of suffering. And we're going to see this morning even more promises for God's people that are all-encompassing. That are all-encompassing. Because what happens when we suffer, right? Maybe you can think of a time in your life when you suffered greatly. Maybe you're going through that right now. And two things usually pop into our heads when we are suffering. The first one is, why? Why is this happening? Why, God, is this happening? Have I done something that has placed me outside of God's will or God's plan? That I was on the path, I was, everything was going well, and then maybe I did something to be outside of God's plan. And so now I'm suffering because of what I've done. Or the second question we can tend to think of when we're suffering, it's not, not just why, but will this suffering that I'm going through cause me to ultimately fall away? This suffering that is so great that it can cause us to doubt God, to fall away from our faith. And sometimes it's easy to sort of you know, think, oh, that's not a big deal, but suffering can be intense. It can cause us to question everything that we know and think. And so this morning we're going to see Paul give a great promise, a precious promise to God's people, ultimately from God himself, that is the ground of our encouragement, our assurance in the face of, of suffering. And so we'll see that even in suffering that God's providential hand is working all things for the good of those that love him. That God is able to preserve us to the end. That he will not lose any of his people. 
and that all of these things are rooted in the eternal purpose of God. So hopefully we see that this morning. So if you want to turn with me in your Bibles to Acts, I mean Romans, sorry, not Acts, Romans chapter 8, we'll be looking at verses 28 through 30. So I'll read the passage, I'll pray for us, and then we'll, we'll look at the text. This is the word of the Lord. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are the called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. That you've given it to us. That it is sufficient, infallible, and all we need for life and godliness. And even though some of the truths in it might be intimidating, overwhelming, and sometimes difficult to fully grasp, we thank you that you have given it to us, that you've given us these precious and very great promises. And we pray this morning that by the power of your Spirit, you would illuminate the eyes of our hearts to, to submit to your word, to see the glory of these promises, and that ultimately we would see our great need for Christ, our great need for a Savior, and the great glory of the gospel. We pray that you would do this, not because of anything that we've done, but because of what you've done. And we pray all these things in the name of your Son, Christ. Amen. Amen. So, these are very big verses. <laughs> some, of, some of them might be familiar to some of us, right? Many of us are familiar with Romans 8.28. Maybe you've seen it posted on Facebook or something, right? God works all things for good. Maybe some of those other ones we might not be so familiar with, or maybe, like I said, we feel intimidated by. We feel overwhelmed by them. And so, even though there is some mystery in these verses, how can God work all things for good? This morning, we'll hopefully see that these precious promises are given for our benefit and the great hope of the believer. So we'll look at three things today. We'll, like I said, we'll look at God's providential work in our lives. We'll look at God's preserving power. And we'll see how this is all rooted in God's eternal purpose from the foundation of the world. So first, we'll look at verses, verse 28, God's providential hand. So Paul begins in verse 28 with saying these words. And we know. And we know. So for most of Romans 8, Paul has been speaking to the church in Rome, to believers. And now he sort of turns and says in this almost third person, he says, and we know. So he's saying, you Christians in Rome and you people in this room, you know something. What do we know? Right? What do we know? Paul's going to tell us. But Paul is sort of assuming a lot of things before he's about to say this. He's assuming, really, all that's been revealed in Scripture. Meaning that Scripture is God's Word. That it is 
sufficient for everything that we need, that it's infallible, that it's breathed out by God, and that his Holy Spirit has inspired it. Paul's assuming things about God as we confess this morning in our prayer of confession that God is all-knowing, all-powerful. God cannot learn something. He is infinite, eternal, triune. Paul's assuming all this before he says verse 28. And so what do we know? What is Paul saying that we know? Well, we look at verse 28 and he says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. For, that. for those that love God, all things work together for good. That this is the great promise that Paul gives. And he says, we know this. That we know this as Christians. And so Paul's distinguishing here. He's saying that there are two groups. There are those that love God. And the assumption is there are those that do not love God. And so this is not a universal promise that God works all things for good for all people, even if they hate God. He's saying, no, it's for those that love God. He works all things for good. So this is a specific promise that Paul is giving us here. And he's saying that all things work together for good. Now, how can Paul say that? How can God promise that? Only if he is all-knowing and all-powerful. How can everything in our life work together for good unless God is all-knowing and all-powerful. And so Paul is sort of assuming this. And so if we think about the contrary to this, what if God didn't know all things? Or what if God wasn't all-powerful? Could Paul say this? He would have to say, and we know that God, for those that love God, some things work together for good. Even if it was 99.9% of things if there is 0.1% that God cannot work for good, then this promise falls flat. And so we can say with confidence that God is all-knowing, God is all-powerful, and that this promise for believers is a great hope. That all things, all things work together for good, for those that are called according to his purpose. Now, if we think about this critically, it's not hard to think of the life of the believer, how the good things might work for good, right? When we're going through life, everything's going well. It's easy to say, yeah, God, this is great. I have a job. I have things to pay for when my family provide for them. You know, my family's healthy. My friends know the Lord or whatever it is. It's easy in those times to say, yes, God is working this for good. But what about those times when it's not so easy, when evil befalls us, when evil comes against us, right? When people sin against us, is God able to work that for our good? What about our own sin? That's a tough question. Can God work our own sin for our good? We should ponder that for a little bit. But if we believe what Paul's saying here, and he really means all things work together for good, we can believe him. How? I think the scriptures give us a sufficient answer. You could turn if you wanted to, but many of us are familiar with the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. That Joseph was the son of Jacob, the beloved son that was given this multicolored coat. Many of us know that story a little bit. And he has brothers, and they're jealous of him. They're jealous that he's this beloved son. And so they beat him up, 
They throw him in a hole and they leave him for dead. And he's sold into prison. I mean, slavery, basically. He goes into prison. And, but eventually, he rises up to power in Egypt under Pharaoh. He's Pharaoh's second-hand man. And through, you could read the whole story in Gen, the latter part of Genesis. But towards the end, his brothers come to him. They're convicted of their sin, that they've sinned against him. They know they've done evil. They beat him up and left him in a ditch. And they are saying, I'm sorry that we've done this. You know, they're, they're confessing their sin. And what does Joseph say? What you meant for evil, God meant for good. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That even the evil actions of these brothers, to beat up Joseph, to throw him in a ditch, <laughs> that even that God meant for good. Because God used Joseph. He rose him up to power and saved the whole nation because of what Joseph did. And so we, God, we see God even using the evil actions of men for good. And we can say, if we think critically, even of our own sin, think about this. When we sin, how could God use that for good? You can think of sins that you've committed today, last week, years ago. How could God possibly use that for good? Well, for the believer, when we sin, we are convicted of our sin. We see our need for a Savior. We don't, hopefully, we don't go into just despair and make ourselves feel guilty and beat ourselves up. Sin, for the believer, should lead us to our need for Christ, for our need for a Savior, to encourage us to go to God and the Gospel. And so we can envision how God could use our, even our sin, and work it for our good. And this is the ultimate good. And so we can confess that there are mysterious things, that we don't always know how God will work something for our good, but we get this promise from God that all things work together for our good. And so we have to ask the next question, who is this promise for? Who is this promise for? We've talked about it briefly. It is for those that love God. Well, I thought we confessed this morning that no one seeks after God. No one is righteous. So, Kendall, what are you saying? Well, Paul gives us a clarification. He says that we know that for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that those that have this promise are not only those that love God, but those that love God have been called according to his purpose. What does this mean? <laughs> what does this mean? Well, we can say this, that in order for us to first love God, something has to happen. We cannot love God until something happens. We alluded to it this morning. There's another place in 1 John where it says, we love because he first loved us. That there's this divine initiative on God's part to love his people, and it is through that love that we are able to then love God. This is this calling according to purpose. And so what is this purpose? What is this plan that God has a plan and he is accomplishing that plan in time. That God from the foundation of the world is saving a people for himself. He's saving a people for himself through the work of Christ. That Christ took on flesh to save a people for himself. That as we've seen in Romans 8 that those that are in Christ 
that God unites people to his son, to his redemptive work, to all the benefits that Christ won, to he regenerates their heart, he gives them the Holy Spirit, all these things that we've seen in Romans 8. And so we have to ask this question, as we said, who are these people? Is it those that are better than other people? It is, is it those that grew up in a good home? Does that, is that who God picks? Does God pick those that do more good than bad? Or does God even look down the corridors of time and see who will have faith? And that's who he picks. No, we see that it is of God's free choice apart from works. And if you could look, if it's on your page, Romans 9.11 says this. Though they were not yet born and had done neither good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. We see in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says this, that God who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our own works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ before the ages began. That this call of God for God's people is not based on our works. It is based on the love and purpose of God. And it's an effective call. We call it in our confession, an effectual call. What is an effectual call? It's, we don't use that language a lot. Is that just a call out in general? Hello, anyone that would come, please come. No, it's an effective call. It's a call that accomplishes what it's set out to do. And not only that, it actually creates what it calls. And a good example of this is Lazarus. Many of us are familiar in the Gospel of John with the death of Lazarus, the brother of Mary and Martha. He dies, Christ waits, and he goes to the tomb, and Lazarus has been buried for four days. And the body is stinking. We, we remember this because Christ weeps and all these things. And Christ comes to the tomb and what does he say? What does he call out? Lazarus, come out. Lazarus, come out. This call of Christ, it creates life in Lazarus. Lazarus was dead. He could not hear this call. <laughs> he was dead. But this great call of Christ creates what was not. It creates life where there was only death. We see this in other places in 2 Corinthians where Paul says this, the God who said, let light shine out of darkness, speaking about creation, has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. That there's this great call of God that creates light and life where there was only death and destruction. And this call of God is effective. And this is the call that Paul is talking about here in Romans 8. That this light of the gospel for the believer is the effect of God's call. That he creates light where there was not. That when we repent and believe and trust in Christ, this is because God first acted, first called us. And as we'll see, this is all rooted in the eternal purpose of God. That this is rooted in the eternal purpose of God. And we see this 
in verse 29. So Paul says, For those that love God, all things work together for good, for those that are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So we've seen that all things work together for good. For who? For those that love God, that are called according to his purpose, that are foreknown by God, and predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. And so this group is the same group, we can say, and we'll talk about this more later. And we see that God is saving a people for himself, and that these people are foreknown by God. They're not a surprise, they're not a mystery, they are foreknown by God. Not that God saved a people that would be good, that would trust in him, but God foreknew them. This language of know in the scriptures is not just always affiliated with a general knowing, like, I know that chair is red, or I know this building exists. It's an intimate knowing. It's a deep level of knowing. We see in the Genesis account that Adam knew Eve. He didn't just know of Eve, he knew her <laughs> intimately. And this is talking about an intimate knowledge that God foreknows, or we could even say foreloves these people. And that apart from anything in them, God has foreknown them and foreloved them. And we see this in Ephesians 1, verse 5. Paul says this, In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. That this is all done in love. So God foreknowing, we could even say foreloved these people and predestined them. And so it's in this that we see the sovereign, unconditional love of God. That before we have done anything, God loved us. In this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. And so we have to be careful here a little bit, because this doctrine is very deep and weighty and heavy. And our confession of faith even knows this and confesses this. And it says that this high mystery is to be handled with special prudence and care. With special prudence and care. That this in no way should create pride in us. That because we believe that we were somehow better than someone else, or more lovely, or more good, if I can use that language, but that it should actually humble us. That God's sovereign love for unworthy sinners, unlovable sinners, should create great humility in God's people and actually cause us to pursue holiness, not walk away from it. And I know that maybe for some people in this room, this has been a difficult doctrine. I know for some people in my life, they've struggled with this idea where maybe they are a Christian, maybe they struggle to understand this idea of what does predestination mean, what is election, what are all these things, and they end up questioning their salvation. And so even though they believe in Christ, they might go through a season of struggle or doubt. And so they're instantly asked this, they ask themselves this question, am I chosen, am I elect, am I predestined? And 
I don't think that's the point of what we're supposed to ask. Or maybe that's not the first question that we're supposed to ask. We're supposed to ask, where is our hope ultimately? Is it in Christ or is it in our ability to work out these different things? No, it's in Christ and in his finished work. And so, like we've said, this should humble the believer, not puff them up. And so, as I said this morning, at the beginning, that these verses are not meant to weigh us down. They're meant to be a great hope for the Christian, even in the midst of deep and dark suffering. They're meant to be hope in the midst of deep and dark suffering. And we see this finally in verse 30. And we see this great preserving power of God. That salvation from front to back, from eternity past to future glory, is a work of God. And we see that in verse 30. Paul says this, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now we can say that for the believer, not only is God working all things for our good, but that no one is able to snatch us out of Christ's hands. That there is this great preserving power of God at work in salvation from before time began to the end of time. That this is all the work of God. And theologians refer to this passage as the golden chain of redemption. The golden chain of redemption. That there's this great chain of events, or we could call it the ordo salutis, the great chain of the order of salvation, that from even eternity past to future glory, God is working, and that it's a golden chain in the sense that it cannot be broken. That from beginning to end, God is at work. And we see this, that God will save his people. And as I referenced before, that the group is the same from the beginning to the end. The circle doesn't keep getting smaller as we go. It is the same people from beginning to end. And notice that it is all the work of God. (laughs) There's none of this talk of what we do. It is those whom he predestined, that he called, that he justified, that he glorified. That none are lost, that it is the same group throughout, that God will preserve his people from beginning to end. And so we've talked about the effectual call. And it says in here that God, those whom he called, he also justified. Justified. What is this? This is the great act of God's free grace where our sin is forgiven and the righteousness of Christ is given to us. So as Daryl mentioned this morning, we don't have a righteousness. We're incapable of producing a righteousness within ourselves. We need a righteousness outside of ourselves. And so this is the work of God justifying us of by faith, imputing to us Christ's perfect life and death for sinners. And so those whom he justified, he not only justified, but he also glorified. And it's interesting that Paul uses the past tense here. (laughs) He says glorified. We're not glorified yet. We've talked in Romans 8 so far that glory is something that is held out for the believer. It's the great hope that at the end of all things, God will make all things new. In this great work of new creation and resurrection. But Paul here uses the past tense. So does that mean that we're glorified? No, we can't say that. We're not hyper-preterists. We're not glorified. 
What is Paul saying here? Well, um, the great theologian John Murray says this. He says that Paul is showing the certainty of this accomplishment. That it's so sure that Paul can use the past tense. That it's so sure that God can, re- I mean, Paul can refer to it as already being done. Because that's how sure it is. Those whom he called, he will justify. And he will ultimately glorify. That this golden chain of redemption is all of grace. It's all of God. And hopefully this morning we're left to see the great hope that the Christian has. And we can say with Paul in the next verse, in verse 31, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? And so as we contemplate these deep and weighty truths, I want to walk away with a couple things this morning. First, that these verses provide profound comfort in trials for the believer. They provide profound comfort in trials for the believer. That, Like I said, the first question we ask when we're suffering is, why is this happening? Does God still love me? Have I fallen out of God's plan? Will I lose my salvation? Will I fall away from God because of the amount of suffering and pain I'm in? And this morning we see that all things work together for our good. That God is able. He is all-powerful. And so Paul here zooms out. He shows us the grand scheme, the panorama of eternity. That God is able to work all things for our good. That he has a plan. That things are not going ever not according to God's plan. And that for the believer, we can trust that all things work together for our good. That this is a precious promise and a great comfort for us, even in the midst of great and profound suffering. And secondly, we see God's assurance of salvation. That for those who believe, those who put their faith in Christ, right? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. We're going to sing that hymn this morning. For those that have put their faith in Christ, nothing can separate us from God's hand. What does Jesus say in the Gospel of John? He says, I give them eternal life, and no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. That no matter our suffering, no matter our doubt, God is able to save his people. And we can have a great assurance of our salvation in the midst of that. That that not even we can lose it. I think it's John MacArthur that said, If I could lose my salvation, I would. Because we are weak. How often do we doubt? And if it was up to us to hold on, white-knuckling, we couldn't do it. (laughs) It is God, every day we wake up, preserving us and keeping us. And as our confession says, this keeps us both humble and pursuing holiness. That it doesn't make us lax in our pursuit, but we can say with confidence that he who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. And finally, we see the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel, and the glory of the resurrection. The glory of the resurrection. That, what does Paul say here in verse 29? That those that love God, that are called, are to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. That Christ, in his life, His perfect life, fulfilling the law, where we could not. His perfect death, suffering in the place of sinners, taking the wrath and curse that we deserved, 
died, and then rose again. But not in a body like he had before, but in a resurrection body. And Paul calls this the first fruits of our resurrection, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, that this great work of Christ in redemption was for us and for our salvation. He rose again, so not only that we might be raised again, right? Our hope is not in this body, but in immortality, in the as Paul says, the immortal must put or the mortal must put on immortality. We see here that it culminates, it's all about Christ. It's in order that Christ might be the firstborn, that he might be preeminent, as Paul will say in Colossians. So all this work is not focused and terminated on us, even though it is a great benefit to us. It is showing forth the great glory and work of God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if we ask this question, how sure is our salvation? How sure is our salvation? It's as sure as Christ's resurrection. That he was the firstborn among many brothers, that he might be preeminent, and that we might have hope, even in the midst of our trial. And so as we come to the Lord's Supper this morning, we remember this question that our assurance is not in ourselves. How sure is our salvation? Is it in our ability? No. It is in Christ's ability to save sinners. And so, in Christ, in his work of redemption, in his work in saving sinners, we have a sure salvation. And that as we come to the table, we have an assurance. And I wanted to read a catechism question this morning that I think is helpful for us figuring out and speaking about this idea of partaking of Christ in the supper and being assured of our salvation. The, the question says this, How are you in the Lord's Supper admonished and warranted that you are partaker of the only sacrifice of Christ offered on the cross and all his benefits? And the answer is this, Because Christ has commanded me and all the faithful to eat of this broken bread and to drink of this cup distributed in remembrance of him. And with this, he has joined the promise that his body was as certainly broken and offered for me upon the cross and his blood shed for me as I behold with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken and the cup communicated to me. Further, my soul is no less assuredly fed to everlasting life with his body, which was crucified for me and his blood, which was shed for me. The signs of the body and the blood of Christ received at the hand. Right? So we see this morning that as we come to the table, we have an assurance for our salvation. Sorry, what did all that mean? That was a lot of words. That the supper is a means of grace. When we come to the supper, we're not looking to our ability. We're not looking to our works. We're looking to the finished work of Christ on the cross for sinners. And when we believe that... We have a great hope that is outside of ourselves. It's objective. It's terminating on the work of Christ. And so every week we do this and we're reminded that this is a means of grace, as we've said, that it's a visible word of God's covenant promises to his people, that those that eat the bread and drink the cup by faith, as surely as they do that, are partaking of Christ's benefits of the work that he's done for believers. And so as we come this morning, we're called to both confess our sin, 
but also rejoice, right? It's not just to be a somber ceremony. It's not like a, it's not a funeral, right? We come, yes, confessing our sin, knowing our unworthiness, but we also come rejoicing that it's not up to us, that God has saved us by the work of Christ. And so for those that do not have faith in Christ, we ask that you abstain from the supper. But if you do believe, we ask that you come with Yes, examining yourself, but also rejoicing. And so this morning we're reminded of our Lord's words on the night he was betrayed. He took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way he took the cup and he said, this cup is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so as we come this morning, we'll form a line here in the middle um, grab the elements and come back to our seats where we'll partake together. We're reminded of what Christ has done, that we are unworthy, but that he is worthy, and that no matter our circumstances, we have a great Savior who ever lives to make intercession for us, who has not left us to our own devices, but has sent his own Son, that we might be made right with God. So, let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this time that we set aside each week to come together to worship you in spirit and in truth, to rest from our worldly endeavors, and to look to the finished work of Christ. And even though we've seen many high and great truths this morning, some of them that may be difficult and cause us to struggle we pray that ultimately we would see the finished work of Christ for believers that from eternity past to future glory, God is able to save his people, that you are able to save your people, and that all things for the believer work together for good. So as we come to the table this morning, we know that we have a sufficient sacrifice, not by the blood of bulls and goats, but by the blood of your only begotten, perfect Lamb, Son of God. And as we come, would we confess our sins? Would we not try to hide them? May we confess them, but may we come rejoicing, knowing that we have a great assurance, we have a great hope that it is not up to us, that it is up to what Christ has done, and he has done it. It is finished. He has done it. May we hope in that this morning, and may you set aside these common elements for your holy purposes, Lord. We ask these things in your Son's precious name. Amen. So come this morning, back to your seat, and we'll partake together.
And so, this bread which we break is a communion with the body of Christ. Take, eat, remember, and believe that Christ's body was broken for the forgiveness of all of our sins. This cup is a cup of blessing of the body, of the blood of Christ. So as we take, drink, and remember that Christ has spilt his blood for the forgiveness of all of our sins. Amen. If you want to stand with me, we'll respond like we do every week. In song, and if you want to turn to hymn number 319, we'll sing Solid Rock.
Stand with me as we sing the doxology, hymn number 13. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen. Receive the benediction from Romans 11. Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. For from him and through him and to him are all things, and to him be glory forever. Amen. Amen. Grace and peace as you go.